This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 23rd, 2021. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week, we feature the most interesting news and research published in Science and the Sister Journals. First up this week, staff writer Kelly Servick joins me to discuss the possibility of blood tests for Alzheimer's disease. Could they be used for testing new drugs or diagnosing the disorder itself? Next, researcher Amir Khan talks with intern Claire Hogan about what Mars quakes can reveal about the red planet's crust, mantle, and core. Last year, about 6 million people in the U.S. were living with Alzheimer's disease. And by 2060, that number could be as many as 14 million people living with the disease. There's no cure, and it's not easy to tell if someone has it from symptoms alone. The testing for Alzheimer's is invasive and resource-intensive. Staff writer Kelly Servick is here to discuss how testing the blood for Alzheimer's might facilitate new treatments and new research. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Sarah. All right. So this is kind of spurred on by the approval of a potential treatment for Alzheimer's disease. I'm not going to say the name of this drug. I'm going to leave that to you because it's very long. But it's really put a spotlight on this issue of testing for the disease in the blood. Why is that? First of all, FDA really surprised a lot of people by approving this drug called aducanumab, marketed as aduhelm for Alzheimer's. And that, that approval was special, not just because there hasn't been an Alzheimer's drug approved in more than a decade, but also because this is the first approved drug that aims to actually interfere with the underlying disease process and slow the progression of disease. And the reason that that has shaken things up is that potentially a lot of older people with memory problems who did not seek care, did not seek an Alzheimer's diagnosis before, might do so now that there is an available treatment. And what they would do to get screened would be what, get spinal fluid taken out? So diagnosing Alzheimer's is really complicated. There are other neurological conditions that can cause dementia and in older people, a lot of other factors that might contribute to their memory problems. And as a result, really confirming an Alzheimer's diagnosis requires waiting to get assessed by a specialist and to be as sure as you can be either getting a PET scan, which is expensive and there aren't a ton of PET scanners in this country, or a spinal tap so that your spinal fluid can be analyzed for certain proteins. 
So we talked about millions of cases of Alzheimer's disease in the U.S. right now. How long would people have to wait to have their diagnosis confirmed with these types of tests in a population that size? It's potentially years to wait if everyone wanted to get that kind of confirmation. It would just overwhelm the system is what a lot of people expect. And so that is where the blood tests come into play. Ideally, a person would come in and get an initial screen in the form of a blood test that would look for proteins in the blood that might reflect what was going on in the brain. And it would screen people out. It would tell people that they do not have Alzheimer's. And those people would not need to go on to see a specialist or get a spinal tap or get a PET scan or any of that stuff. How does this line up with this new drug, though? Were they using a blood test to evaluate this drug? Or is a blood test or a PET scan or a spinal tap needed in order to say, yes, you can go on this medication? Interestingly, the people who were recruited into the trials of aducanumab All of them had beta amyloid, this Alzheimer's-associated protein, confirmed in their brains with a PET scan in order to participate in the trial. I should say that there were two large trials that gave conflicting evidence about whether this drug actually helps them. That's an important thing to know about it. Right. But when FDA approved the drug, its label does not specify that doctors need to use any type of confirmatory test like a PET scan or a spinal fluid analysis to determine candidates. They really didn't give any guidance about how people's diagnosis should be confirmed, which puts people in a very sticky situation. Right. And there's only certain kinds of patients that this drug is recommended for. So just this month, FDA sort of narrowed the group of patients for whom it recommends aducanumab to just people with early stage, relatively mild Alzheimer's disease. Those are the people who participated in the clinical trials also. We've been kind of hinting at some problems with the approval for this drug. Can you kind of lay that out for us? Yeah, this approval was very controversial. There were two large clinical trials conducted by the drug's developer, Biogen, and they gave conflicting answers about whether the drug actually slowed cognitive decline in people with early stage Alzheimer's disease. So there are some doctors who have come out and said they're not prescribing this at all. Certain large health systems have said they're not going to administer this drug. There are calls for an investigation of FDA's relationship with Biogen over the course of the review process. So there are a lot of questions about how and for whom this drug is really going to be effective. And of course, it's very expensive. The list price is $56,000 per year and involves monthly intravenous infusions and monitoring for potentially very serious side effects like brain swelling and small bleeds in the brain. So you need to be really sure that someone has Alzheimer's if you're going to prescribe this to them. And it really has kicked in or accelerated the research into blood tests for Alzheimer's, despite the kind of murky background on this drug. Can you talk about some of what's being tested now for blood tests? Yeah, really the last couple of years, these tests have gotten more and more sophisticated and really proven themselves in certain ways. They've shown a really strong concordance with other types of confirmatory tests for Alzheimer's, like PET and spinal fluid tests. There are a lot of different kinds of tests, both different technologies you can use and different things you can look for in the blood that might be helpful. There is already one test commercially available in the U.S. that measures levels of that protein beta amyloid, a form of beta amyloid in blood that might indicate a person has problematic amyloid buildup in their brain. Right now, a doctor would need to send a blood sample to this company's lab and have it analyzed. So there is hope that there might also in the future be tests that can be run on equipment that is already standard in a lot of clinical labs. And there's also a lot of excitement around 
tests that look for a form of a protein called tau, which is many researchers think is potentially even more closely linked to the onset of symptoms in Alzheimer's than beta amyloid, and maybe even predictive of people who will go on to have Alzheimer's dementia in the coming years. Basically, these two proteins are linked to Alzheimer's, but the mechanism for the disease isn't really understood. Yeah, and these are sort of two front runners, but by far they're not the only proteins that are of interest. And like you said, there's a sort of long, complicated cascade of events over the course of more than a decade that sort of constitute this disease process that leads to dementia. So in particular with beta amyloid, having that build up in your brain does not mean that you have dementia or even that you're ever going to develop it in your lifetime. It's just associated with this disease process. If these blood tests start to come online, are they going to be able to say, yes, you have Alzheimer's? Or will they also be able to say, this is the stage that you're at? I think the hope for these tests is that they're going to give you an indication on both of those questions, right? They're going to be able to screen people for further confirmatory testing of whether they have Alzheimer's and maybe also give people a sense of their stage of disease or what they can expect. Many people I talk to are really wary about these tests being overinterpreted. They do not think it's appropriate for a person to come in with memory problems, get a blood test, and on the basis of that result, get diagnosed with Alzheimer's or be put on aducanumab. So I think it's important to point out, especially when it comes to beta amyloid tests, that that result alone does not say something about whether you're going to have Alzheimer's dementia. How would having a blood test for at least yes, no on Alzheimer's help with research into the progression of the disease and treatment for the disease? This is a place where I think these blood tests are already being used and sort of showing some value. Drug developers who want to screen patients who are going to participate in their trials can use the blood test as one of those initial screening steps to try and make sure that they are enrolling people who really have Alzheimer's. And then different levels of these markers in blood can also potentially fluctuate over the course of the years as disease progresses. And so they could be very powerful indications of what is going on biologically as the disease gets worse and could maybe point to drug targets and ways to treat it beyond aducanumab. So there is one test that's commercially available, but pretty limited in its scope or in its ability to supply many, many people with the test. There are a couple others that are in the process of being tested. What needs to be done to kind of push them to become available and to get approval eventually by FDA? I think a couple of things need to happen. One is the sort of nitty gritty validation of these tests in different labs and different scenarios, just sort of making sure that the results are robust, no matter who's running the test and, and in what place. And the other piece of this is really validating the results in diverse groups of people. A lot of these studies that have sort of shown promise to these blood tests were done in people who were recruited from specialized memory clinics. They tend to not have other medical conditions like kidney or heart disease, which in some cases can change the levels of certain Alzheimer's associated biomarkers in your body. So it's going to be important to just to demonstrate that, for example, in a primary care office, if you do this test on whoever walks in, the results are going to be accurate enough to help guide your decision making. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you, Sarah. Kelly Servick is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the news story we discussed at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a chat with Amir Khan about measuring Mars quakes.
This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there is no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, upload your resume or CV to the searchable database, or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. Now we'll speak with Dr. Amir Khan, a senior scientist at the University of Zurich and the Institute of Geophysics at ETH Zurich. I'm Claire Hogan. We've all heard of earthquakes, but what about Marsquakes? Data from NASA's InSight mission show lots of seismic activity on Mars, and those tremors can illuminate the composition of Mars itself, giving us more information about the planet's evolution. Dr. Amir Khan and colleagues wrote about their discoveries regarding the interior structure of Mars in three papers published this week in Science. Hi, Amir. Hi, uh, Claire. Let's start at the beginning. Prior to this new research, what did we know about the structure of Mars? What we knew already about the interior structure of Mars mostly came from um, satellite missions, mostly about the surface, the geochemistry and the, the rocks on the surface of the planet. The real important thing is to look inside the planet. And for that reason, we sort of need a dedicated geophysical laboratory on the surface, which is what Insight is all about. So why are you doing this research? Why is knowing the structure of Mars so important? What we'd really like to understand is why is the Earth the only planet with liquid oceans and plate tectonics and abundant life? Mars is presently on the edge of what we call the habitable zone. It may even have been more hospitable early in its history, right? The answers to those questions is they are to be found on Mars, and particularly they are to be found in its interior. And how is InSight collecting these data points on Mars? It's passive in the sense it's just sitting there and waiting for the equivalent of earthquakes on Mars, which are called Marsquakes. InSight has been on Mars for about two and a half years now, and it has actually recorded more than a thousand Marsquakes. Out of those 1,000, we're using about a dozen to do the science that's gone into those three papers. The observed Mars quakes happen to be mostly small magnitude events that are on the order of three to four, which is something that you would hardly feel if that happened on the Earth. And Mars quakes, they'll happen somewhere around the inside lander. And the seismometer on the surface of Mars next to InSight is picking up those signals, those vibrations, disturbances that travel from where the Mars quake happened through the interior of the planet and up onto inside. Yeah, when I was reading the papers, that's one of the things that struck me is that they're called Mars quakes, which is amazing. Are Mars quakes similar to the earthquakes that we have here? It's exactly the same. And Mars quakes, like earthquakes, are caused by faults. That is, rock fractures created by stress in the outer brittle layers of the planet. The earthquakes that we feel here on Earth that come from faults are caused by plate tectonics, by moving plates, right? Now, on Mars, that's a little different because Mars, unlike Earth, has no tectonic plates. Its crust is like one giant plate. It's uh, what we call a one-plate planet. But there are still faults forming on or in the Martian crust due um, to the slight shrinking of the planet. 
you know, it started off hot and it's cooling for four and a half billion years and it's still cooling. And that cooling will produce slight stresses in the crust that will cause a failure, rock failure, basically. And those that rock failure will produce a disturbance. And that disturbance travels through the interior of Mars and is picked up by InSight. So you have all these data points about Mars quakes. How do you get from Mars quakes data to inferences about the structure of the planet itself? What is recorded by InSight is a so-called seismogram. These are a seismogram consists of a bunch of small wiggles. So what we do is to spend a lot of time to look through these seismograms for a series of vibrations that represent a quake. We don't know whether it's a Mars quake. We have to figure it out. Or is it because there is wind action, right, that's shaking the lander or shaking the seismometer? We sit there and we look at the wiggles. And if the wiggles that we're looking for follow certain, can I say, known patterns that would indicate that it originated from a Mars quake, then we know that this type of, you know, Mars quake or seismogram that we're looking for. And then what we do is to look for particular, some of these particular wiggles, you know, you'll have a bunch of wiggles coming in and the initial wiggle is known what is known as the primary or the P wave. And then after that comes the secondary wave or the so-called S wave. And in between the P and the S wave, And also after the S wave, there are a bunch of wiggles associated with waves that have been bouncing off the various layers inside the planet, such as the interface between the crust and the mantle and the core and the mantle. And those wiggles, including the P and the S, is uh, what we're interested in. And these three research papers talk about these three different layers of the planet, the core, the upper mantle, and the crust. So for each layer, what are the key takeaways? What does Mars look like from the inside? It's Earth-like in the sense that it has a crust, it has a mantle, and it has a core. So if we look uh, more specifically at the crust, we find underneath, at least underneath the lander, with a thickness of, say, somewhere between 25 and 45 kilometers. And that's not very much unlike what we have on Earth beneath the continents. Crustal thickness is an important parameter in as much as it is intimately related to the way Mars has thermally and dynamically evolved. Today, we don't have plate tectonics on Mars. Maybe it existed early on. We don't know. Today, as I said before, it's a one-plate planet. And depending on how Mars would have evolved into a single plate planet with either a thick or a thin or medium-sized crust that actually is constrained by its evolution, really. So that's why you need to know the thickness of the crust, because that tells you something about how it evolved. What we've also seen is that the crustal composition, you know, the chemical elements that make up the crust, they're so-called radioactive heat-producing elements, like uranium and thorium and potassium. And what we found is that they are more enriched in the Martian crust than what had been traditionally, or I should say previously, determined from satellite data. What we have actually seen from InSight now is that the relative proportion of these radioactive elements is a lot higher than what we originally thought. And what do those radioactive elements tell us about the formation and evolution of Mars? Based on what we saw earlier, which was from satellite data, and the satellite data will, of course, only see the immediate surface. So what people were believing back then is what we see on the surface is also true for the rest of the crust. That does not seem to be the case. When you compare the inside, the new inside result with what we had before, 
you know, the crust must become more or less evolved as you go down in depth. So we've talked about the crust. What about deep inside the planet, the core? What did you learn about the core of Mars? I mean, that's been one of the most interesting things is what we found out about the core. So what we already knew before that Mars had a relatively large core, we didn't know exactly by how much. I mean, it was anywhere between 1,500 and 1,800 kilometers. So now we are even above that number. And we have also observed that the core is liquid. And there were indications of that before too, but that's definitely been confirmed that Mars has a large liquid core. The implications of a large liquid core is that it precludes the presence of a lower mantle. Like on the Earth, we have the crust and we have then a division of the mantle into upper mantle, a transition zone, and a lower mantle. And that's all defined by the minerals that make up the mantle. So what we find on Mars is sort of a simple version of that, of the mantle of Earth, in the sense of the minerals that we see are equivalent to the upper mantle of the Earth and the transition zone. The lower mantle, the minerals that exist in the lower mantle of Earth can't exist on Mars simply because the core is too big to allow these minerals to stabilize. You know, then you can ask, what's the importance of that? Well, the importance of that is that if it had this equivalent of the Earth, this lower mantle with a particular set of minerals, then that, you know, might have acted as an insulating layer that would have kept the heat inside the core for longer. And how dense is the Martian core? Does that tell us anything more about the planet? One of the big results with the core of Mars is exactly, so I said it's large, it's liquid, it's iron and nickel rich, but it also happens to be because we have observed that the mean density of the core of Mars is relatively, compared to the Earth and say Mercury, is relatively low. And in order for it to be so low, it has to have a large complement of what we call light elements. Those are elements lighter than iron and nickel. So the question comes, if it has such a large complement of light elements, where did it get it from? And that is what sort of puts a constraint on the formation of Mars, because for it to have, can I say, accumulated so many of these light elements, it must have formed very, very early for example, when the solar nebula was still around, that appears not to be the case for the Earth, but that must almost must uh, have been the case for Mars. And it certainly might also have accumulated a lot of material that comes from the outer portions of this protoplanetary disk from which the planets, I should say, of our solar system was formed. Because simply, the further you go from the sun, more of these so-called volatile elements will condense further out away from the sun where the temperatures are lower. And if Mars has accreted a lot of that material or material from the outer portions of this disk, then you would also have a means of getting these a lot of these light elements into the core. Right? So these are the big open questions that we have right now is to understand this relatively low density of the Martian core. You know, what does it mean in terms of its formation and in terms of the light elements? What are those light elements that will get it down to such a low number? What's next for Mars seismology? Do you see future research directions using the insight data? I would like to say, or at least I think that these results are basically only in the beginning. We're hard at work to refine the models of Mars interior structure that we have sort of derived now and the models that we use to constrain its formation and evolution. And on top of it, we have to keep in mind that new Mars quakes are being detected every day. 
in spite of the fact that Insight's energy at this stage continues to be a little concerned because the energy is going down because the solar panels are getting all covered with dust. In spite of that, the seismometer is still around and it's still, can I say, listening. And we're still, for one thing, hopeful that we'll see some of the bigger Mars quake. Most of the Mars quakes that we have seen so far are basically small magnitude. So if we could have or record one of the big ones for and above, a lot of the stuff we do requires a lot of careful processing to pull out these small wiggles from the data. We'd record a bigger event that would make it overall easier, not only to extract the data, but also to do things we can't do today. So in order to also answer your question in the long term, one of the open questions that we like to understand is, of course, something that, as I mentioned before, in particular, we'd like to understand if Mars has an equivalent of, you know, Earth's solid inner core. Whether Mars would have a solid inner core depends crucially on the light element content and the temperature structure of the core of Mars. Thanks, Amir. Thank you, guys. Dr. Amir Khan is a senior scientist at the University of Zurich and the Institute of Geophysics at ETH Zurich. You can find a link to the research at sciencemag.org podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the Science website at sciencemag.org slash podcast. On the site, you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. And of course, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. The show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Megan Cantwell, and Joel Goldberg. Special thanks to our intern, Claire Hogan. Transcripts are by Scribby and Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.